welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Jessica Davis, and today I'm talking to Dr. Rachel Schmidt about her recent article in International Journal, Investigating Implicit Biases Around Race and Gender in Canadian Counterterrorism. Rachel is a recent graduate of Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs PhD program, is a Shirk postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Denver, is a senior editor at Open Global Rights, and tweets at, at Rachel Schmidt. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, to get things started and to set the scene for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit of, or give us a bit of an overview of your paper? You know, briefly tell us what it's about. Sure. Well, the, the impetus for this article actually goes back to fieldwork I did in the UK. I went there in late 2017 because I was interested in researching women returnees and women disengaging from political violence because there was a lot of research on a growing body of research on men's disengagement and no one was really talking about the women as you know <laughs> but during the course of my research there what i actually found were these reoccurring stereotypes that kept coming up over and over again about the women who were involved i ended up calling that article duped because that was a word that just kept coming up is that you know everyone is being duped by these women who are pretending that they're stupid and pretending that they've been tricked and in that research i talked to counterterrorism prosecutors and intelligence ex intelligence officers and ngo workers and practitioners etc so I published that piece earlier this year, it came out. And then I started becoming interested to see if that, if those same findings would hold in Canada, given that Canada is, you know, heralded as a global leader uh, in gender equality. We have, you know, GBA plus that many government officials are very proud of. But I wanted to add a few questions on racial bias as well, given everything that's come up, especially in this past year. But given, you know, counterterrorism's track record on racial bias is not that great. <laughs> and so I was interested to see if, the, if what I found in the UK would also hold in Canada, given that, you know, Canadian policies on gender are quite overt and were heralded as as a global leader in multiculturalism. But what I found was that persistent gender and racial stereotypes were still a key challenge impeding Canada's efforts to adequately address both radicalization into and disengagement from extremist violence. Yeah, that's really interesting when you talk about that because you know, obviously I've got my own experience in the Canadian security intelligence uh, world. And one of my experiences has been that when we talk about racial or gender bias, there's a bit of pushback on that, that there is no racial or gender bias in security, that, you know, everybody's really good analysts, that we're all just doing this to keep Canada safe. So I'm curious to see from you and from your interviews, what kind of pushback you got to that concept while you were doing, doing your work? <laughs> well, this was really funny because I actually had to change the way that I framed the research that I was doing to get people particularly men in the intelligence sector to talk to me. And by that, I just mean, as soon as I use the word gender, a lot of people like to no fault of their own, just misconceptions of the word were like, oh, I don't do that. Because it's a common misconception that gender equals women. And that's a that's women's work. And I mean, I can see where that comes from. Because if you talk to any GBA plus advisors or gender advisors, they're almost all women. So we haven't done a very good job in Canada or really anywhere to dispel this myth that gender is about is only about women. So that was one issue. So I started to reframe to say I'm looking at different types of implicit biases 
in counterterrorism and countering violent extremism without specifically using the word gender, you, you know, to get more people to recognize that, you know, they might have a few things to say about the topic. So that was definitely one stumbling block that I learned very quickly and reframed very quickly that I need to I need to not use the word gender, which is funny because half the study is about gender, but that's okay. But then some of the other pushback was, you know, actually the people that I talked to, they were very aware that this was a problem. And a lot of them even admitted that they saw the problem in their own work as well. Like some of them were like, yeah, we really focus a lot on, on Islamist extremist terrorism and and we know that that's an issue, but we still do it, you know? Or like, yeah, we know that gender is not just about women, but, you know, gender is still mostly about women. So it was this interesting thing that they knew that this was happening and they kind of knew that it was a problem, but it was more that they didn't really know what to do about it, or even if they changed their approach, if that would actually change anything. But I didn't actually get anyone pushing back on me around the question. Most people actually agreed that it was an important question. They just didn't really understand, you know, what to do about it. There were a few, particularly in intelligence and security, who just didn't understand what gender or GBA plus had to do with their work at all. Some of them didn't even know what GBA plus was. But as a researcher, it's not my job to convince them it's important. It's just my job to ask them questions. And so in that way, there was never any combative energy because I wasn't there to train them to do something. I was just there to, to ask their opinions. And we had some really great candid conversations. I learned a lot <laughs> about what they think GBA plus is. So in general, actually, the conversations were really fun. Yeah. And very revealing because, because people are, you know, seem very willing to talk to me because I was an outsider. And so there wasn't a big threat to their career or anything by telling me these things. Yeah. So that's probably a good time now to talk a little bit about what gender in the CT and CBE space means. You know, we've talked a little bit about what it isn't, which is only about women, but what is it? What does it mean? And like, what's the impact in CT and CBE? Oh, and also maybe explain what CT and CBE are. <laughs> okay. So I use CT for counterterrorism and CBE for countering violent extremism. And to be very clear, I'm well aware that those are not the same things. And I do make this distinction in my paper, but I think often this does get a bit conflated, but it's really important to acknowledge that those are two very different things with very different people often working in the fields. And in my paper, actually, I, I do talk about how there is some conflict between those two fields in having different goals and kind of setting different benchmarks in terms of, in terms of what kind of work they're, they're trying to do. So gender, in the way I use it in my research, is a social construct. And right away, like people's eyes are glazing over for sure, but stay with me here. So meaning that it is ideas of masculinity and femininity that get attached, not just to people, but also to actions, also to objectives, and often influence power structures. And gender identities and norms are particularly powerful and salient in armed groups. I mean, we see this everywhere, right? I mean, even in, in conventional state military structures, if you look at recruitment ads, they're often about, you know, being macho and, and, and hyper-masculine and being the protectors and the rescuers. And in non-state armed groups, this, this can be particularly exaggerated. And when I think about especially the ISIS propaganda, I mean, they did this exceptionally well. 
you know, playing on those narratives of being the male lion protector and the, the female mother of the caliphate and all those types of things. So if we ignore those things and we ignore how non-state armed groups and extremist groups are using gender, not just to recruit people, but also to build group cohesion, also to get buy-in from the communities. If we ignore those things, we ignore all the underpinnings that allow these groups to thrive. So I always say, it's like when we only focus on the pointy end of the stick, like we only focus on the attackers and attackers are mostly men, then we really miss a whole bunch of the machinery that's happening underneath. Yeah, it makes me wonder a little bit about that whole term gender in CBE and CT. You know, I've always, I find it a little bit imprecise and it's so easy to conflate sort of two or more very different things, which is like the role of women and then the role of masculinities and gender norms in that, you know, because to my mind, these have very different impacts on recruitment and mobilization as well as disengagement and demobilization, but are often part of the same conversation. So do you, do you struggle with that as well? Yeah, you know, and that's what I mean when I say it's a social construct, right? Like gender can be whatever you want it to be in a certain way in that it can be an identity, it can be a frame in terms of like, if you frame something in a certain way, then everything else falls into that frame. Like if we think of the patriarchy where, you know, men are at the top and the breadwinners and the protectors, that's a very particular frame under which everyone falls into certain identities, you know, within that frame. Gender can also just mean male, female to certain people, right? Like I think of gender reveal parties where that doesn't mean anything except whether it's a boy or a girl. So it, it's very imprecise in that it can be an identity, it can be a framework, it can be you know, symbolic, it can be a power structure. But on the flip side, it can be then very useful analytically, especially because I use a lot of framing theory in my work, not in that article so much, but in other work, that I find it very useful to look at it as a lens through which things are interpreted. But it's very complex and and very imprecise. Yeah, which is why whenever I write papers, I always specify exactly how I'm using gender at the top, because I think there are way too many assumptions that go along with that, that we can't just say gender and keep rolling, assuming that the audience is with us. Yeah, and I think right now is probably a good time to try to get a little bit more concrete about sort of how gender can impact, in this case, particularly counterterrorism, but also CVE. So I wanted to ask you about the case of Rehab Dagmush. So for people who aren't necessarily familiar with that name, she was found guilty of four terrorism charges after she attacked store workers at a Canadian tire in 2017. The year before, though, she tried to join the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, and her brother had actually told the police that she wanted to join the terrorist group. And then she came back to Canada, the investigation was closed, following which she planned and then executed her attack. So what do you make of that story in the context of your research? Well, this is a perfect example, right, of how implicit biases or maybe explicit biases affect the actions that are taken you know, by security officers, by organizations. It's a really fascinating case because in some of the workshops that I do now on implicit biases, one of the tools I tell people is if you're not sure if your bias is affecting something, flip it to test it. So if we flip this case and the suspect is instead a man, would that have gone differently? I mean, I can't say for sure, but it seems highly likely 
that security forces would have taken a man whose brother had reported on him who wanted to travel to go join ISIS a lot more seriously than they did a woman, the sister. Now, some people are going to be angry at me for saying that and saying they've, you know, they followed all steps regardless of it was a man or a woman. And that very well may be true, but it's very hard to read that case and not see a gender bias there. And this is the tricky part of dealing with these biases is that they're very often implicit. They're not explicit. And this is a thing I think a lot of people in national security are, like, are working on, because I know, because I've been working with public safety on this, but the difference between explicit and implicit bias, because you were talking earlier about pushback. And I think this is where the pushback is, because people say, well, we're not racist. We're not sexist. We, you know, we take women seriously. We we look at all kinds of other identities, but it's not about being explicitly biased. It's about having implicit biases that you don't even know are there that affect how you assess situations. And implicit biases are notoriously hard to overcome. So I think that that's where a lot more education and awareness needs to come in is not, we're not telling people you're racist, you're sexist, you know, you're bad at what you do. We're telling people that you're human and all humans have implicit biases. And unless you get a good grip on how that is, it's affecting your work, it's always going to be there. Yeah, I often think that, you know, the implicit bias is much more dangerous than the explicit one, because if somebody were to come and tell me, you know, we don't think this individual is a threat because she's a woman. I mean, that's easier to have a conversation about. It's easier to be, to challenge, to discuss, to break down. But if someone's just saying very vaguely that they don't think someone's a threat and you're kind of wondering what it's based on or what, that makes it much more difficult to have a conversation about. Which actually brings me to the next question that I wanted to hear, uh, I wanted to talk to you about, because I often hear people talking about being gender blind in their analysis. And that always gives me pause because we know that in, at least in a terrorism context, there are significant differences between how men and women radicalize and how they mobilize to violence. So I think you heard the term gender-blind analysis in your interviews, if I understood the article correctly. And so what did you think of that when you heard that? Well, it's like when people say they're colorblind, right? Because I do at some point want to also talk about the racial aspects of this article, because it wasn't just about gender. And when gender and racial biases intersect, then the impact on national security actually becomes even more profound. But this idea that you can be gender-blind when looking at armed conflict when looking at extremist violence. To me, that's impossible because those groups and those actors and the actions that they take are not gender neutral. They never are. So when you're looking at, well, the vast majority of these actors are men, that's gender. That's not saying, well, we don't have to worry about gender because all these guys are men. Well, but men also have gender, right? And there's something going on there that, it, that it's men who are being attracted to this and that it's men who are who are running the show, right? But I think this idea that, that any of us could be gender blind is just as farcical as any of us could be colorblind. Like that's not possible. Even if you just look at exposure to TV shows and books and media and news articles, all of that affects these implicit biases that most of us don't even know that we have, right? But yeah, I mean, gender blind, no, that's... You can believe that, but you're just fooling yourself because this is impossible. I take that point. And you also make an interesting point later in, in your article too about the importance of having more biases at the table instead of trying to be bias-free. So can you explain what you mean by that? Because you know, I think that we're all thinking to ourselves, oh, I want to be bias-free. That's, that's the goal, right? So I have to give credit where credit is due, even though I can't actually name 
the person. So I didn't come up with that. It was actually one of my participants who said that to me. And we had a really interesting conversation about what that meant because at the time, prior to this, I had had an interesting discussion at a TSAS conference where one of the reps from public safety was saying, you know, we, we have a goal to be bias free. And I being like, <laughs> not always having a good enough filter burst out laughing. And then of course, apologized for laughing. And then I said, well, I'm sorry, but that's not a feasible goal. We're human beings. We cannot be bias free. We can take away explicit bias, but implicit bias is always there. I mean, there's all kinds of science and studies on this for people who want to research it more but it's it's just impossible so this one person that i was talking to said we all have our own implicit biases so the only way to really address that is to bring more biases to the table so that we're because we all see different aspects of the problem right so someone else who has decades of experience in counterintelligence will obviously have a ton of strengths in terms of you know what they're looking at and, and the experience they have but a different person you know perhaps coming from a racialized background or you know, someone like a social worker or someone else from a different aspect of the community, they're gonna have different biases in terms of what they see as a problem. So it doesn't mean one person's right and the other person's wrong. It means they're seeing different facets of the problem. So if you can bring more people to the table, you're obviously gonna have a more comprehensive view of what's actually going on. When everyone at the table has the same background, are from the same demographics and have the same education, that's when you run into a problem with compounding implicit biases, right? Absolutely. And so I, I did want to unpack that a little bit more. So, you know, how do you think that our implicit biases around race in Canada have framed how we've adapted to the evolving terrorist threat? Are there any lessons that we can learn from other countries? Or are we all just sort of struggling along at the same rate? I always feel want to feel very careful as a white woman talking about race, because I certainly don't have all the answers. But most of the observations that came out of this article were observations from participants who were from racialized communities who really wanted to get their perspectives out there. And I really did my best to represent what they said, rather than, you know, my own views of, of this issue. But part of what you said, I think is true. I think we're all kind of struggling along. But I think that's kind of a terrible excuse for something that we've known about for a really long time and have just decided to not address head on. And I mean, it's kind of a little bit disheartening that it took something as massive as, you know, the gigantic street protests in the United States to wake everyone up to, and now all of a sudden, you know, you see in multiple government departments, you know, we need to, we need to get on this, we need to have more bias training, we need to do more of this, when this is not a new problem. And I really think that the communities who have been most affected by racial bias by the security sector are just so exhausted from continuing to beat this drum. But one of the things that came up in my interviews that I thought was really interesting was not only racial bias, but one of my uh, respondents said, you know, Canadians in general are are kind of tone deaf to religion in that we don't, a lot of us don't really have a good understanding of the power or the impact of a strong religious background on someone's life and someone's choices. Um, these are not my words, this is what this person said. And the point he was trying to make is that we have this assumption of rational choices, right? That people make rational choices and then we try to understand people's choices through that lens. But he said, if you don't 
understand the power and the impact of religion or the power and the impact of racialized oppression, what looks rational to you might not actually be rational to someone else in those circumstances. And then that goes back to bringing more biases to the table, right? So a white security officer trained in a Canadian university, you know, with a policing background might be very good at their job and might understand very well the problem, but what is rational to them might not actually be rational to the person that they're looking at or to the person across, across the table. So I think we have a lot farther to go. I think one of the problems is, is that we kind of hide behind this idea that Canada is not racist, that Canada is like harmoniously multicultural. And until we can get beyond that and admit that, you know, we have a, a very, very white government <laughs> and that affects the policy choices that we make, until we can be very open and transparent about that, this is gonna continue to be a problem, I think. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder a little bit, though, too, you know, one of the recommendations in your piece, and I think one of the recommendations that's coming out a lot in government right now is to have more implicit bias training. Does that work? So I might be shooting myself in the foot here as someone who's done some of this implicit bias training. But here's the thing. Well, here's what we know in terms of the data on implicit bias training. So most of the data is taken from implicit bias training on police forces, right? So that can't necessarily be translated to like corporate implicit bias training or government implicit bias training because it's a very different population. But very early studies on implicit bias training in police forces actually showed that the training actually made biases worse. And the reason for that was that they, first of all, they used to call it unconscious bias and some people still do. And so what happened was they did this training on unconscious bias and then people had this feeling of, oh, well, it's unconscious, I can't help it, then I guess it's okay. And so then they kind of had a rationale or an excuse for their biased behavior. So that's one unintended consequence of implicit bias training. So what, then when that kind of evidence became clear, the training started to develop and and try to make it very clear that, okay, yes, this might be implicit. And as a result of, you know, decades of conditioning, it doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. It doesn't give you carte blanche to be racist or sexist or, or anything else. But what we know is that these one weekend implicit bias workshops basically do nothing. And I made that very clear when designing workshops. I said, like, this is, this is a step one in an ongoing process of incremental change. Like the only way to really make these things stick is to make it a continual, ongoing, repeated process. Because if you think about how deeply entrenched these implicit biases are, you can't unpack that and undo it in one weekend of training. And to think that you can means you're not really taking seriously how sticky and entrenched these biases are. So I wrote in my recommendations in my article that these are monumental and incremental changes. Like this isn't something that we can just do overnight and like, let's change the racial demographics of the Canadian government and the problem will be solved. You know, obviously that's not what I'm saying, but I also don't want to give the impression that if we just roll out this government-wide implicit bias training that everyone does over a couple of days, that that's also going to solve the problem because it won't. We have hard data that shows that it doesn't. So this needs to be something that governments commit to over the long haul. 
And right now, like is GBA plus in particular, a lot of people just see that as a checkbox, you know, like I even heard the, heard the phrase, well, we look at something and we ask if we GBA plus this. And I said, what does that mean? GBA plus this. And the person was like, well, well, it means, you know, did we GBA plus it? <laughs> and I was like, oh, tell me more. Because I didn't understand how this became a verb to GBA plus something. And so it became very clear to me that this was like a checklist of like, oh, we check this, we check this, we check this, instead of what it actually should be, an analytical process that's built in from the very beginning, right? And that's where the pushback happens because people don't want yet another thing to think about in their job. They don't want yet another layer of bureaucracy that they have to wade through. And I think the only, re the only way to get buy-in with this kind of thing is to show people how it makes their work better you know, how it can insulate you from critiques, how it can make sure you're not missing things. Yeah, and I think that's the other question that I wanted to ask you is like, how does GBA plus make law enforcement and security service officials better at their job? How does it keep Canada safer? Well, I don't know if it does right now. <laughs> I mean, how could it maybe is the, is the question. So to be honest, I think First of all, GBA plus just kind of has a branding problem because everyone thinks GBA plus is about gender and gender is about women. And if nothing you work on has to do with women, well then GBA plus doesn't apply to you. So that's kind of problem number one. You know, if we can ever get past that and say, well, what this really is, is an analytical tool to make sure you're looking at all aspects of a problem rather than, you know, zeroing in on the one aspect of the problem that's your specialty. So, I mean, I think my article on the UK is a great example of that, where like it shows how women terrorists who were arrested and charged, where they had hard evidence that the woman had done the crime that she was accused of doing, were either getting fully acquitted or getting super light sentences. And the counterterrorism prosecutors were so frustrated. And the only thing they could point to in the differences in sentencing was because the, because the accused were women. And even judges would even comment on the appearances of how like small or pretty or young they were, or how like surely this must have been some terrible man who, you, who convinced them to do this, right? And in terms of racial bias, you know, we're conditioned to believe that darker skinned people are more dangerous and more capable of committing harm. Is that horrible and grotesque that, you know, that we have this implicit bias? Obviously it is. But this is a, a, a very deeply entrenched implicit bias that many people have that's very hard to overcome. So when you have these, this conditioning that, you know, that women are easily tricked, that they're usually not the culprits, and that you know, racial biases, that darker skinned people are more capable of harm, when these things intersect, then it allows us to overlook other things or it causes us to miss other things. I mean, why is white supremacist terrorism only now gaining traction on the radar of security services. Like this has been a problem for a really long time, right? Yeah. And I think it's particularly salient today for us to be talking about this. You know, New Zealand released the Christchurch report today, talking about how they were had been overly focused on Islamist inspired extremism and essentially missed um, what was a pretty big terrorist attack. So I think that the, the evidence for that is pretty clear from my perspective, but I think we need to, do need to continue to make it explicit to make sure that the message is getting out to all law enforcement and security services. 
I just think the biggest hurdle here is, is getting over the, the pushback that, especially, you know, with more experienced people in this field, of them feeling like they're being accused of having, you know, done things wrong or of missing things. And then it becomes this internal battle rather than, you know, everyone working together on something that is clearly a problem to make it better, you know? And I think public safety is really on the right track in terms of trying to address implicit biases. But my big concern here is that this training is going to be rolled out and everyone's going to do it. And then we'll kind of say it's done. And then eventually, probably quite quickly, things go back to the way that they were. And I'm not claiming to have all the answers, obviously, but this was a pattern that that came up in all of my interviews that, you know, most of the people were aware that this was affecting their work and that it was causing them to not see certain things or to not see the whole picture. But a lot of them just said, we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to change the way we work. So I think, you know, having more concrete tools and giving people the ability and training that's not just like checkbox training, okay, here, now you've dealt with your implicit bias, but that's actually applicable, useful training to show them how to address these gaps and these holes that they know are there. I think that's the only way forward. Because like I said at the beginning, I didn't actually have anyone that was really resistant to this idea that there were problems that needed to be addressed, but a lot of them just didn't know how to even start. So Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it, it kind of comes back to one of the things that I'm always on about, which is our need to be critical of our security and intelligence services and to look at you know, post-incident reviews and look at what happens. And I think that that's true when something bad happens, like a terrorist attack, but it's also true in just in terms of our operations, in terms of understanding, you know, did we miss something? Was part of the reason that we missed something because of those implicit biases? And I really think that, you know, we need to normalize it, the, the idea that people have those kinds of biases and we're all going to make mistakes because of them. But we have to acknowledge that and learn from them in order to actually make this better. And, and when you were talking, I sort of thought too, that this is maybe the kind of thing that our review bodies really need to be seized with, you know, seeing maybe NCIRA or a committee of parliamentarians doing a bit of a study on, of implicit bias and how that's affected security and intelligence services in, in this country would probably be very worthwhile. Yeah, and I think that's really it, this idea of normalizing it, because I really think that that's where you get the most resistance, is when people feel like they've been accused of something that's very specific to their sector, when it's not, when it's just a human thing. We all have implicit biases. Whether or not our implicit biases end up harming other people is a different story. And so this is one of the things I go over in my workshop. If you think of the implicit bias of a dog walker, you know, and I love my dog walker, is the effect of that person's implicit bias is very, very different than the implicit bias of an intelligence officer or a police officer or, you know, a government policymaker. So it's not that, that these people have worse implicit biases than everyone else. It's that their implicit bias has a much greater impact on certain populations than others. And that's why it needs to be addressed. So I think, you know, we kind of need to dial back on any kind of accusatory language because that 
is it's really problematic because it doesn't get us anywhere and then people feel attacked and they hold up behind their walls and then everyone you know shores up and <laughs> and we make zero progress but i think it's more about being like look everyone has these issues but you have an enormous impact on the population so this needs to be addressed first with people who have a greater impact before we can address you know all canadians or whatever but yeah normalizing it i think it is a really really important first step well, that's a great place to end, Rachel. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was really enlightening. Well, thank you so much.